Funding for Think comes from SMU Continuing and Professional Education. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. If the government is not allowed to limit free speech except under very specific conditions, does that mean we can all say anything? We Americans take great pride in our First Amendment rights, yet we still have a pretty complicated relationship to the freedom of expression. Statements that are not barred by law can still get us fired from our jobs or ostracized by polite society. We argue over what content our children should be allowed to access as part of school curricula. And there is the reality that the same laws that allow some people to speak up for civil rights and justice allow others to spout hatred and intolerance. In the course of researching the facts and contradictions inherent in a free speech society, my guest himself had one of his earlier books about the working poor temporarily removed from the shelves in Highland Park schools, based on some parents' objections to its references to sexual abuse and abortion. Other parents in the district came to the book's defense, and the suspension was ultimately reversed. The author is Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David K. Shipler, who writes online at the Shipler Report. His new book is called Freedom of Speech, Mightier Than the Sword. Dave, welcome back to Think. Thanks, Chris. Nice to be with you. You write about, and I love this phrase, the turbulent coexistence of both unyielding certainty and constant questioning. It says a lot about the way the world is today. It does. You know, I, what I was trying to do in this book was to map the landscape of free speech in America uh, by drawing its boundaries, because that's what you do with a map. You 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 draw the, the outer edges. And inside those boundaries are some turbulent, uh, vitriolic, informed, uh, uplifting, hateful uh, expressions of attitude across the political spectrum. Uh, as I went along on this, I realized uh, to, to pick up where you began in your introduction, that there were two overlays on this map. One was the legal overlay, namely the First Amendment, which actually uh, restricts what government can do, not what private entities can do. And the other was a cultural overlay that has very different boundaries, and they're shifting all the time. Uh, They're complex. And uh, that's really what I focused on, although some parts of the book do deal with government behavior and government action. Mostly it's uh, a discussion of where the limits are and where the struggles have occurred at those boundaries uh, in the cultural area. One example of that is the kind of casual, you know, homophobia and racism and sexism that people might have uttered a generation ago that just caused an eye roll. Today can get you in some real trouble, can get you, you know, ousted from some important position simply because you've said these things that are protected under the law, but that too many people find objectionable. That's right. And uh, there are a few variables that are interesting to look at here. One is that uh, groups that are targets of uh, uh, bigotry, let's say, expressed bigotry, uh, have different rules attached to them. I mean, they have different levels of protection. I think in the United States, by and large, Jews are very protected and blacks mostly protected. They're under an umbrella of, of deference and protection so that People who utter anti-Semitic remarks uh, or anti-black remarks uh, often face opprobrium at the least and sometimes, uh, as you mentioned earlier, even job dismissal. Muslims are uh, at the edge of that protection, I think. Now we have uh, ambivalent uh, sort of fuzzy fuzzy lines. In some situations, Muslims can be attacked and stereotyped. In others, uh, they can't, or at least there's some 
uh, fallout for the person who does it. And different people also are punished, let's say, we use the word punished in an informal way, uh, in different ways, depending on who they are. So, for example, I took uh, a very close look at criticisms of Barack Obama that appeared to have racial components to them. Now, this is not always easy to discern because uh, race can be part of a legitimate criticism or it can be absent from it. It's not easy to isolate race from the other elements of a criticism of a president who, after all, uh, is entitled to be criticized. (laughs) That's what we do with our presidents. But when you lay out the major stereotypes that have been used against African-Americans traditionally in in the United States, you can see how some of the criticisms of Obama are uh, either embedded in the fact that he's African-American or uh, are amplified by his race. And I'll give you one quick example of that. One of the standard traditional stereotypes of blacks is that they are less intelligent than whites. Uh, They're stupid and so forth. This is a pretty hard Uh, criticism to make of Obama, who's obviously brilliant. But you may remember uh, that he was criticized for using a teleprompter. Well, can you remember any other president who was criticized for using a teleprompter when they all have since that device was invented? And I think that was uh, an encrypted way of, of dredging up this old idea that blacks are a little less intelligent. He couldn't really just speak off the cuff. He had to read his speeches and that sort of thing. And there are many other examples of this. Uh, I think one of the most skilled practitioners of uh, embedding racial overtones in criticism is Rush Limbaugh, the talk show host. And he does it uh, very routinely. I mean, he he summons up ideas that Obama is is an angry man. Our anger is a uh, epithet that's been directed against African-Americans for a long time. And there's a kind of fear of the angry black man. I think Obama has bent over backwards to avoid being seen as an angry black man. And in fact, some of his supporters would like to see him angrier. <laughs> but but Limbaugh manages to use the, the anger. He talks about the chip on his shoulder uh, and that sort of thing. Another one is arrogant, which is a a word attached very often to Obama, uh, much more so than than to any other president that I can recall. Uh, and, and that's interesting because I did a book on race relations some years ago looking at stereotypes and found that arrogant is a word often attached to someone who has undeserved power. Hmm. And it has been used against blacks uh, fairly frequently. So uh, when Obama gives a speech defending Obamacare, for example, which he did at some point, I remember the conservative commentator Pat Buchanan getting on television and talking about how arrogant the speech was and how, um, you know, how smug and so forth. And Tom DeLay, the former speaker, uh, said the same thing. He called Obama arrogant in chief. Now, We've all watched Obama for many years, so each of us is entitled to decide whether he's arrogant or whether he comes across as arrogant. I I don't find him that way, but others may. Uh, I do know that he does sometimes tilt his chin upward, and if you Google Obama arrogant, uh, you'll find lots of pictures of Obama with his chin tilted upward in in what looks to be a kind of arrogant pose. 
his uh, intonation is often exasperated when he speaks. I don't know that he could be blamed for that, given what he's faced. But that's also interpreted as arrogant by many people. But I think there's a there's a somewhat subtle racial component in this and some of the other criticisms that tends to amplify the impact of the criticism. So that's one example. It's There are lots of others. I mean, Obama, I mean, you can find uh, examples all over the Internet of Obama portrayed as an ape, uh, and which is the old, old stereotype of blacks as subhuman. So that that's really uh, the most obvious and, and blatant uh, racist stereotype. Uh, but then there are all of these other, you know, somewhat encrypted kind of dog whistles, as some people call them, appeals to racial imagery and so forth uh, that that fly around the Internet. So the Internet's a great tool. I mean, it's a, democratiz- it's a democratization of speech. We, every one of us can set up a website and have our say. And uh, But on the other hand, it also spreads conspiracy theories, lies, and, you know, and racism. So, so what do we do with that, David? Uh, you know, I, I would agree with you that it seems like there is a lot of sort of coded racism in the way that some people talk about the president and other leaders of color as just one example. On the other hand, um, it, does that mean there's no room in the society to let, let's take the word arrogant out of the conversation and discuss whether the president is inappropriately aloof or uh, you, 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 do you understand what I'm saying? Like, is, is oh, it yeah. then there... out of the question to talk about these qualities that might bother us in any leader or might please us in any leader? It's not out of the question. That's what makes it so interesting to look at Obama. And that's why I chose to look at him rather than, you know, just any, uh, you know, any guy who who happens to be the target of this, because it is complex. I mean, you know, we're we're in the 21st century, having gone through uh, slavery, reconstruction, the civil rights movement, affirmative action, uh, integration to us to an extent, not thoroughly, but some degree of integration. And I think the society now has constructed a kind of superstructure of inhibition about expressing racist attitudes. So most of the the racial thoughts are under the surface if they exist in people, and I think they still do exist in many people. They're under the surface, and when they do come out, they're like shapeshifters. They take the form that seems acceptable. And I don't know that this is all conscious. You know, people often, I think, do this unconsciously, and and the shapeshifter is a convenient way of of uh, expressing a kind of racial attitude which, without seeming to be expressing a racial attitude. And, of course, the president is uh, certainly subject to criticism, justifiably in many cases, in my opinion. Uh, so the question really is, does the criticism uh, somehow touch the nerve of racial stereotyping in some you know, subtle way? Uh, and is the criticism amplified by the fact that he's African-American? You know, for example, Bush, George W. Bush was also criticized for for being stupid. And I remember at least one caricature of him as an ape. But the fact that he's white means that there isn't the resonance uh, that there is when you do that to a black person. And I think that is an important difference in the way it's received and perceived by the American public. Another point you make that is really interesting here is that we let some groups get away with, um, let's assume they are hyperbolic calls for violence. You write about differing responses when some Tea Party congressional candidates talked about armed revolution. um, And then there was this Muslim cancer researcher who used similar rhetoric and ended up in jail. Yes, indeed. Uh, That was a very striking example because there were three candidates I counted who 
basically said, well, if we can't uh, win at the ballot box, we should take up arms. And nothing happened to them. I I think uh, I don't know that the FBI really even investigated uh, to see whether they were serious about it. Uh, But certainly there was no uh, thorough investigation, no prosecution and so forth, uh, which I think is the right decision, frankly. I don't think they were actually imminently advocating violence and the overthrow of the government. But this uh, guy, Al Tamimi, who was a cancer researcher and a kind of uh, self-made uh, I guess you could say, theologian of Islam, uh, went to a dinner shortly after 9-11 and met with um, some young Muslims in suburban Virginia who were very worried about uh, the blowback on Muslims that might result from this event. And he gave a talk which uh, apparently urged them to go fight on behalf of Islam somewhere, whether in Chechnya or Afghanistan or somewhere. And a few of them did. They they got tickets and they, you know, they went off and trained at least. I don't know that they fought, but they went to training camps in Pakistan or something. And then uh, the word of his talk uh, got out. Uh, you know, I think informants uh, who were under some threat of prosecution may have given information to the FBI and to the Justice Department. Uh, and Al-Tamimi was uh, prosecuted. His defense lawyer urged the the judge and then the jury to see his speech as protected by the First Amendment, that he he wasn't organizing any uprising, that he wasn't actually uh, uh, trying to help the enemies of the country. He was talking more in philosophical terms, uh, actually, than in conspiratorial terms. But uh, he was charged and convicted of uh, conspiring to... uh, provide material support to a terrorist organization, and he's in jail for a long time now. My guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David K. Shipler. His newest book is Freedom of Speech, Mightier Than the Sword. If you'd like to jump in on this conversation, we have lines open at 1-800-933-5372. You can email think at kera.org or send me a tweet at Chris Boyd Think. Funding for Think comes from SMU Summer Youth with hands-on workshops in robotics, Minecraft, game design, and visual arts for students entering K-12 at SMU's Plano campus. Online registration is available at smu.edu slash summer youth. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. My guest this hour is David K. Shipler. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and his newest book is called Freedom of Speech, Mightier Than the Sword. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, call 1-800-933-5372 or email think at kera.org. Dave, you spent some time talking to Texas educators for this book. What did you learn about how some of them are pushing back against what they see as curriculum materials written to serve a particular agenda? Some teachers uh, told me that they really did uh, try to evade some of the restrictions or bend the rules, so to speak, and and teach the way they thought uh, students should be taught. Uh, I sat in on a history class, an American history class, uh, which was particularly interesting given the, uh, the, the state's 
guidelines that uh, free enterprise, the free enterprise system and its virtues should be uh, pushed very hard in the curriculum. In fact, I think at one point the uh, the guidelines uh, eschew the word capitalism because it, they think it's, you know, somebody thought it had taken on a negative connotation. So uh, anyway, this particular class uh, I happened to sit in on was studying the rise of the populist movement uh, in America. And the teacher played the role first of uh, of the, uh, the, the the railroad baron, and the students were all the farmers. So, the stu- so she got into a debate with the students who were trying to get their goods moved to market with uh, uh, as little cost as possible, and the and the railroad owner was uh, charging them a lot of money, and and they got they went back and forth on, you know, why this was, and the railroad owner, the teacher said to them, well, if you don't like my fares, uh, why don't you uh, go to another railroad? And of course, they said, well, what you, there is no other railroad; you have a monopoly. And and, and then she became the uh, you know the middleman, selling, sending uh, goods, buying them of goods, and sending them to market, and. And then the banker give, making loans and and demanding high interest and worrying about the farmers not repaying their loans and so forth. And it was really an illuminating discussion because the the, the kids were terrific. I mean, they'd obviously done their homework and they really understood the dynamics of this. And it was not uh, a denunciation of the free enterprise system at all. It was more an illumination of it and how it works and the pitfalls of it. Uh, the fact that you can get into situations where there are monopolies and and the farmers were somehow less powerful than uh, the business owners they depended on, and you know, and then of course in the end the farmers organize and they you know create a populist movement, form the Grange, and uh, to try to uh, kind of level the playing field in the marketplace a bit. But I thought it was just a fabulous lesson that. Uh, I'm not sure that the most conservative members of the State Board of Education would have really appreciated given some of their views. But in a way, I think it was healthy for the kids to know you know, how it all works and to learn, you know, the you know, the about the dynamics of the free economic system. Uh, And I would, you know, my hat's off to the teacher who really figured out how to do this in a creative way. Yeah, our kids should all be so lucky as to have someone that dedicated to showing the whole picture, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she's just a terrific teacher. The teacher you wish you had, you know, yeah. when you were in school. All right, let's talk about your book, The Working Poor. You and I talked about it on this show when it came out um, three years ago. Uh, it was for a time challenged as inappropriate reading material for students in Highland Park schools. First of all, how did you learn about this? I learned about it through the through a phone call, I think, from a reporter uh, or by seeing online something about it. Uh, and... Uh, you know, the initial reactions that I had from friends and some relatives were uh, messages of uh, congratulations, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, this must, this must, this is a feather in your cap, you know. Banned I'm, in Boston. You know, right. Banned in Boston. But, you know, I didn't actually feel so great about it. And uh, uh, partly because I had just finished my book on freedom of speech and I had uh, uh, written the whole first section of the book uh, about uh book challenges uh, in schools around the country and focusing particularly on a suburb of Detroit, the Plymouth-Canton School District, where uh, a parent had uh, seen a passage in a novel and Xeroxed it and 
it took it into the superintendent and uh, the superintendent and then also objected to the next novel which was in the course which was beloved by Toni Morrison a great book i think one of the greatest uh, books in modern american literature because it dealt with uh, bestiality and incest and all that sort of stuff and and he just felt his daughter who was in the advanced placement english course in that school shouldn't be exposed to this kind of thing so the superintendent in that district did what the superintendent in Highland Park did. Uh, he summarily uh, withdrew the books. Uh, and in Highland Park, as you know, the the superintendent just uh, suspended uh, the use of seven books, including The Working Poor, on the basis of a parent's complaint. So, uh, And then, you know, what happened in Highland Park was also what happened in this district in Detroit. You got the the community divided. And most people, it seemed to me, certainly in Detroit, this was the case. I went there and did a lot of reporting. I haven't been to Highland Park, so I, I'm seeing it only you know, from a distance. But uh, you know, I think most parents there, it seemed, uh, really rallied to the side of the educators, the professional educators who had decided that these books were good books for uh, AP English. I mean, remember, it's advanced pay- placement courses are supposed to be college level. So you're talking about books that do demand a certain level of maturity by the students. And I think uh, careful guidance in their reading from professionals who have uh, been trained to do this. You know, So I think that uh, uh, there was that kind of division in Highland Park and also in the Plymouth-Canton district. And in both cases, the books were returned to the curriculum. But I tell you, I didn't feel I didn't feel real great about it. Frankly, I didn't uh, bask in the glory of the moment of being being challenged or suspended. I and and partly because I I saw as I was working on my book on freedom of speech that um, you know we we segregate ourselves we Americans into enclaves of common interests, and we often. Uh, live within soundproof barriers, and we don't like hearing, reading, or seeing ideas that violate our preconceptions. These are what my a good friend of mine calls gated intellectual communities, mm. and I think that's what is going on when parents challenge books. Not not every time, but very often, and I think certainly in the case of the working poor, uh, the challenge had to do with a couple of issues. And one of them was about politics, actually. It was about political ideology. When you, when you look at the actual written challenge that was ultimately submitted by the parent in the case of the working poor in Highland Park and then withdrawn by her, uh, you see that it's not only about uh, sexual stuff, which, is, which I'd like to sort of talk about a bit because I think it's been misunderstood by those who haven't read the book, but also about uh, the portrayal of poverty and uh, a kind of wish that uh, the American dream were still true and that we should uh, teach our children that it is true. That is that if you work hard, you can prosper, you know, beginning and end of story. And I think that's, you know, the reality is much more complex because the people I interviewed for the book were working hard. I mean, they were working very hard, long hours, and they were not prospering for a whole variety of reasons. Some of them had to do with their own personal failures, uh, their family's failures, and some of them had to do with the society's failures. And my basic point in The Working Poor, which I think this parent did not get, but the, the teacher got it because I read his rationale for 
adopting the book, Rance Nelson's uh, the the teacher, uh, was that uh, we got to have to get past our political ideologies when we look at poverty. Uh, you know, the right looks at the family and individual uh, responsibility. The left looks at the societal responsibility. And in fact, both come into play in each family. You can't categorize people that simply. So we get, we have to get past the left-right divide if we're going to address poverty in a serious way. And I think, you know, the the kids seem to get this. I, I had a Skype conversation with a large number of the AP English students in Highland Park High School, uh, and uh, they asked very good questions. They seemed to tune in to the, to the important elements of the book. I, I tried to make clear that uh, I did not approach this from an ideological viewpoint, which is, which is the case. I didn't. I mean, I, I wanted to describe what I saw and what I found. And the other issue that the parent uh, objected to was the fact that I had interviewed women who were in poverty who told me that they had been sexually abused as children. Uh, I didn't go after this subject at all. I didn't never ask anyone about this. I included it only after quite a number of them told me. And the reason they gave for telling me was that they felt it was central to their understanding of how they had gotten to where they are. That is, the, the aftermath of that experience was devastating to many of them. They they had very low self-esteem. Uh, they thought very little of themselves. And this is, uh, you cannot succeed in the marketplace of, of jobs without feeling that you are able to. And if you have very, if you feel defeated and, and kind of damaged, you're not going to do well. And the best job training programs try to repair that feeling in you. They also felt they couldn't uh, uh, make emotional attachments with men, which uh, is an aftermath. It's part of the post-traumatic stress disorder that results often from being sexually abused. They couldn't be trusting. They they couldn't be emotionally accessible. So after hearing this for from quite a few people, I decided, well, I think this really does have to be mentioned. And I didn't do it in a graphic way at all. There's no sex but, scenes uh, in the book, we should say. No, it's, no sex know. scenes. There's nothing prurient. I mean, the the parent objected to, I guess, one interview particularly of, of a woman who had had an abortion when she was in high school, and she didn't want to have it, but her mother really forced her to have it. She was unmarried and young, and uh, and she described it as a very traumatic experience. I, I would think most uh, people reading this would not want to have an abortion, actually. It was a pretty anti-abortion you know, story. So I was a little surprised that the, a conservative parent would not regard this as something of a, an object lesson uh, for a, a child. But, you know, people come out of reading things with their own views and their own assessments. I, 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 all I can do is put the words down one after another and and also, I think it's very important to say you do have to rely on trained teachers to lead students through difficult terrain like this. I mean, this is this is certainly true. And I think it's uh, – I mean, there's a legitimate debate to, ha- to be had about what age kids should be before they uh, confront material like this. Of course, they're getting a lot of stuff outside of books, as we all know. I mean, uh, video games and – you know, and, 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 and the Internet and music videos and so forth. It's interesting, you know, I, 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 if you make a list of the subjects and books to which parents tend to object in various school districts, 
I would say that sexual stuff is at the top, then profanity, uh, and I, a sort of subcategory of the sexual stuff um, is books that have characters who are gay or lesbian and are portrayed sympathetically because conservative parents, socially conservative parents, are worried that sympathetic portrayals of homosexuality will somehow legitimize it and even perhaps encourage it. So that that issue is a really one of great concern uh, from from that group of parents. And then then anti-authority stuff. I mean, you know, the reason that I think one reason Catcher in the Rye uh, by Salinger is often challenged is that uh, his main character, Holden Caulfield, is a defiant guy. You know, he's, he's really... And that's why kids love it. You know, they see this uh, a recalcitrant uh, kid. You know, so that's fun to read about. But one issue that is not uh, a reason for challenging books very often is violence, <laughs> which is quite interesting given I, what I would say as a parent, and I am a parent, and I'm now a grandfather, I would really be particularly troubled by books that show very violent scenes. I mean, I, last weekend I was... Uh, at a uh, book fair in Maryland, and I happened to to meet a, a children's author, and I was ta- talking to him about this whole book challenge thing, and he he said, "Well, that's interesting because he said I did a book where I drew, you know, he draws as well, and he he said I did a, a drawing, and there was there were it was a character with very short shorts, and then there was a character with a severed head, and my publisher wanted me to change the shorts, but didn't wasn't bothered by the <laughs> severed head." So there you are. <laughs> you know, Dave, one thing I really liked about this book, and I like anything that causes me to turn my own biases and assumptions inside out and really examine them, is I thought about this whenever, whether we are liberal or conservative or something in between, whenever we are fighting for our right to free expe- expression or our right to consume the product of someone else's free expression, we feel really justified and you know validated by the Constitution. But when it's something that we disagree, agree with, um, it's it's a little harder to put ourselves in that position. So, for example, you know, you mentioned some conservative parents are concerned about, socially conservative, about, you know, positive portrayals of uh, gays and lesbians. Um, I think a lot of parents would be really bothered if, you know, a school textbook had really negative portrayals of gays and lesbians. And suddenly this question of, you know, everything should be available for free speech gets a little bit harder, you know, for for people to to feel like they would always espouse. And and that contradiction is fascinating to me. It is fascinating. And you're absolutely right. It's a great example because uh, gays and lesbians, I should have mentioned earlier, are, I think, uh, a group that has begun to come under the umbrella of protection from uh, vilification. uh, And there you have a cultural limit, not not a legal limit to speech, but a cultural limit. So people who say negative things or stereotypical things about gays and lesbians, if you're a politician, for example, you might want to think twice before you do that these days. I mean, the the revolution in American attitudes on this has been remarkable. I mean, the, the speed with which uh, American society and, and most of American society has come around, for example, to uh, accepting the idea of gay marriage. It's, I don't know that there's any other social issue that has you know, been so turned upside down in terms of of attitudes. But you're right. I think that many parents on the other end of the spectrum, if they saw a book that made such, uh, you know, stereotypes uh, about gays and lesbians, would object. 
I think they would object. And I, you know, I mean, you get uh, this, for example, about Huckleberry Finn, you, the use of the N-word, although actually I think Twain was uh, doing an anti-racist thing in the book. I mean, but you have to kind of go down to a different level to, to, to see that. So, yeah, I mean, we, I, you know, my, my basic feeling is, if, especially if you take away the age factor of kids in school and what age they can handle certain stuff, is the more speech, the better. Uh, and uh, I think that we need to turn all the ugly stuff out in the sunlight in order to cure it and rebut it and argue against it. Journalist David K. Shipler is my guest. His newest book is called Freedom of Speech, Mightier Than the Sword. You can be part of the conversation at 1-800-933-5372, or you can email think at kera.org. Funding for Think comes from SMU Summer Youth with hands-on workshops in robotics, Minecraft, game design, and visual arts for students entering K-12 at SMU's Plano campus. Online registration is available at smu.edu slash summer youth. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David K. Shipler. You can find his work online at The Shipler Report. His new book is called Freedom of Speech, Mightier Than the Sword. Our number is 1-800-933-5372. So, Dave, what do we do with expressions of opinion, expressions of speech, like the Mohammed cartoon contest that we saw in Garland um, a few weeks ago, offensive, um, as it turns out, incendiary, not illegal. Um, And of course, we don't want to equate doing something really offensive with the violence that came from that event. That's right. I think there are two separate issues there. Uh, One is the rights of the people who are doing these cartoons. And by the way, there's part of a cottage industry of people I call Islam watchers who have developed a whole theory that the Muslim Brotherhood and therefore Hamas has very sophisticated designs to take over America, spread Sharia law. And I have a whole chapter on them, uh, which I call the Protocols of the Elders of Islam, a takeoff on the fraudulent uh, Protocols of the Elders of Zion that was written in the early uh, 20th century. Because what they've done is really uh, create what I you know, I drilled down into their sources and I talked to them and I attended a couple of training courses uh, and I looked carefully at all their documentation. Uh, and I, I can tell you the fact checkers uh, at The New Yorker or The New York Times would never have approved the, the material that they're sending out because it's full of gaps, holes, uh, you know, assumptions about the authenticity or the authoritarian authority uh, of particular documents uh, and so forth. I mean, I just don't think they've proved their case at all. But nevertheless, uh, uh, they're part of this balkanized uh, uh, landscape of speech that we have. They have adherents. They have believers who go to their websites, quote, they quote one another. It's a, it's a kind of walled community, uh, which, um, you know, has had an impact, I think, on some politicians and law enforcement agencies. So, but they're right. I mean, they have every right to do this. I, I would, you know, if anybody tried to shut them down, if government did, or if the, you know, the website, uh, you know, the internet providers or anybody like that tried to shut them down, I would be standing shoulder sh- to shoulder with them 
to protect their right to say all of this stuff, even though I think it's uh, a lot of it is bunk. It's still uh, part of the landscape and it should be permitted. So, you know, the cartoon contest that you're referring to uh, tested both the right to speak and the content of the speech. And I think those are two different things. So their right is unassailable and nobody should ever be killed for speaking or for drawing. I mean, that was outrageous and uh, what those two guys tried to do. And and I think that uh, all Americans ought to rally behind the idea that you should not be punished by death for, for anything that you say or, or draw or anything. I mean, that's just completely unacceptable uh, in any society, but especially in our open pluralistic society. On the other hand, that doesn't prevent you from criticizing or condemning what they did and what they were trying to do. And I personally wouldn't endorse uh, deliberately uh, violating the uh, sensibilities of other religions or or my own religion for that matter. I don't think that, uh, you know, we should be, you know, the cultural limits to me would say, look, uh, that's a line that you could, shouldn't cross. I mean, what, what's the point really of uh, caricaturing Muhammad? And, and if you look at the winning cartoon, you know, it's Muhammad looking uh, very fierce. You know, he's really got an angry, scary face and he's wielding a, a scimitar uh, and he says, uh, you can't draw me. And the artist who's off the frame, but you can see the hand and the pencil, says something like, that's why I draw you. Uh, so the artist is defying the instruction. So fair enough, you know. But, you know, the, these cartoons are often full of anti-Arab stereotypes. You know, they, they really are. And so, you know, if you did that, if you if cartoonists drew stereotypes of Jews, for example, boy, they, they would really have a lot of trouble in the United States. But but somehow Muslims are, you know, not quite fair game, but, but they certainly don't have that order of protection. So I think these are two separate issues, and we have to keep them separate. Um, and unfortunately, these two gunmen uh, confused them and reframed the argument into a free speech argument, when I think the argument should really be, uh, is it uh, ethical? Is it uh, moral? Uh, is it appropriate and, and, and decent to insult the dignity of whole religions, uh, as uh, some people do? 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. Let's go on the phone now to Don in Highland Village. Hi, Don. Yeah, hi, Chris. And, uh, Mr. Shipler, how are you? Hi. Okay. Uh, you really kind of <laughs> stole my thunder. I was uh, going to comment on the reaction to the Garland, Garland shooting, and uh, uh, I've been really saddened to see uh, some people, many of whom I would normally consider to be progressives who have, you know, need First Amendment protections, uh, at least historically, uh, tend to come out and say that we need new restrictions against hate speech. And, yeah, yeah, that's a bad idea. Uh, yeah, I think we're on the same, same page on that, and uh, uh, I really don't have much to add to what, what you said uh, other than I think that that would really be a slippery slope and be, begin to undermine our, our, our democracy. And I don't think that, unfortunately, and I agree if you as as reprehensible and, and offensive as some of the speech can be, that uh, we still can't guarantee everyone that you will not be offended as you go 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 about your life. And that's uh, right. Yeah. As you say in your book, the the antidote for this is just more more speech. And uh, I would really like to kind of throw out a, a question when when I see this, uh, the you know statements made about re- restricting hate speech or offensive speech. Well. 
how exactly would we, we implement this? You know, like, would we set up a new government agency to review expression? <laughs> well, I think it's impossible under our Constitution. Uh, fortunately, the United States has the First Amendment, and the courts have uh, interpreted it uh, very broadly and permissively, including this uh, Supreme Court, which uh, you may recall a few years ago, uh, ruled that the Westboro Baptist Church, which did very offensive things, they they would send people to the outside of soldiers' funerals with signs uh, saying that the soldiers deserved to die. This was uh, God's vengeance against the United States for supporting homosexuality. And the court ruled eight to one, I think it was, that uh, the uh, the church people had every First Amendment right to do this. And it was not, uh, you know, it was protected speech, as offensive as it was. You know, you may remember Oliver Wendell Holmes once said that uh, freedom of thought, it's, it's freedom uh, of thought is not for the thought we uh, approve of, it's for the thought we hate. Mm. Uh, we don't need First Amendment protection for the conformist thought. We need it for the outliers. And if you look at other countries that uh, have, uh, in effect, hate speech laws, and most Western European countries, for example, outlaw Holocaust denial, uh, and uh, the communist countries were pretty strict, uh, you know, in terms of uh, uh, outlawing uh, speech that uh, stereotyped ethnic groups. But look what happened when the authoritarian regimes uh, were taken away. I mean, Yugoslavia is the most dramatic example. That was a country where uh, you couldn't really uh, vilify other ethnic groups. And in, after the collapse of that regime that, that held things together, the country blew apart into ethnic enclaves in a horrible war. And I think the Soviet Union is a somewhat more peaceful example, which broke up into 15 countries along the lines of the 15 constituent republics uh, and, you know, so forth. I mean, even in countries that didn't have violence, uh, such as uh, Romania, for example, you have, uh, you had, a, and Bulgaria, you had a lot of anti-ethnic uh, uh, expression right after the authoritarian regimes collapsed, which, all of which says to me that you don't eliminate uh, the hateful attitudes by outlawing them. They just go underground where they fester, and when there's an opportunity for them to be expressed, they will be. It's much healthier to do what we do, which is to turn it out into the sunlight and debate it and oppose it. It occurs to me, Dave, that despite the vexing uh, conflicts and contradictions inherent in all this, there's also something hopeful in the fact that, you know, as your subtitle says, we we believe in this society that words are mightier than swords. We're not a sticks and stones society. We don't think that what people say doesn't matter. And there's something hopeful and even ultimately maybe peaceful about looking at the world this way. I think that's a good way to put it. I was actually quite uh, uplifted by the reaction in the Plymouth Canton School District to the attempts to to get the two novels out of the curriculum because the community rose up in a most of the community rose up in a very exhilarating way to to defend the teachers and to defend the right to read and to uh, honor their own children's maturity and intelligence. Uh, there were even recent graduates from the high school who came back to testify before the Board of Ed praising their teachers. And one of those, by the way, is now has now been elected to the Board of Ed. So you have that silver lining of uh, seeing, a, a, you know, kind of an upsurge of, of you know, kind of uh, affection 
for free inquiry and intellectual thought, uh, intellectual honesty, and that sort of thing. On the other hand, there are defeats within the victories. For example, uh, I am told that at Highland Park High School, the English, a lot of the English department is demoralized. You know, the school system has now a very onerous bureaucratic system uh, in place uh, when teachers want to use books. They have to write a long rationale for for the book. Uh, a parents or a community committee is is convened to review the book. And in fact, my book, The Working Poor, was just reviewed earlier this month and approved again for next year. But uh, I think that from what I'm told, you know, there are teachers who really feel demoralized and uh, a couple have or or leaving the school, maybe more than a couple. I don't, I'm not quite sure. So I, I think that's a you know there's some damage that's under the surface there. And also, I, I think you don't what you don't know is whether the book challenges in various places four to five hundred a year in the country, which doesn't really seem like a lot given the scope of the U.S., are just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I know librarians who've told me that. Uh, there are librarians who are – and public libraries who are reluctant even to order certain books because they're afraid there will be a big community uproar. Uh, I know teachers who – I've been told there are teachers who are reluctant to include books that have been challenged elsewhere in their courses even though they feel they're, they're really good books to, for students to read because they don't want to run into the buzzsaw of community opposition. A teacher at Plymouth Canton told me one of, the, one of the people I write extensively about in my book, Brian Reed, who said I could say this publicly, that during the book challenge, and, and they won, by the way. I mean, they got the books back in and they were praised by you know, the community and all that. But still, uh, during the book challenge, Brian... Uh, uh, started to have trouble sleeping, and he uh, went into, you know, he was having panic attacks. He went into depression. He had to have be on medication for it. And he said to me, he said, you know, education has become unsafe. Uh, boy, that's a terrible uh, thing to think about. And he now doesn't teach AP English anymore. He's decided to drop down to lower-level English classes uh, to avoid some of this controversy. And that's... Uh, that's serious when you see something happening like that as the result of a, a controversy, even where the teachers actually won, it makes you think and it makes you consider that there's a, you know, there's some real, there's some fallout here, uh, probably much more than we recognize. Why do you think so many people don't have a nuanced understanding of, let's just talk about the teenager issue here and we, we have about a minute left for you to respond, but people don't believe that teenagers can read something and look at it critically, even though they've spent their entire education being taught to be critical readers? <laughs> I don't know. I think, don't look, different parents have different uh, assessments of their children's uh, levels of maturity, and different children have different levels of maturity. It's not all based on chronological age. Uh, what I think a lot of the problem comes from is the the few parents who challenge books are not just trying to prevent their children from reading them. They're trying to prevent all the children in the class or the school from reading them. And most schools, I think, now give alternative readings as an option to parents. And so, you know, they can opt for another book or they don't have to. Most of these courses, the AP courses are elective, so they don't have to take them. So I think there's, there's a legit, look, there's a legitimate discussion to be had 
uh, among parents and teachers about the levels of maturity. I, I think there's no question that some of this material is hard to teach and hard to lead kids through. Uh, so, I mean, parents, you know, parents want to do want to parent. They want to be parents. Some of the objections to the books come from a, I would say, a kind of a, a subculture of parents who feel that the public schools are alien territory, that they're too permissive, that they're bastions of liberalism, and they feel quite divorced from the school system and distrusting of it. And that's a, that's a deeper divide, I think, than just over one book or another. David K. Shipler writes online at The Shipler Report. His newest book is called Freedom of Speech, Mightier Than the Sword. David, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for making time for us. Well, thanks, Chris, for having me. Think is produced by Stephen Becker and engineered by Shelley Canavy. Lindsay Connect is associate producer. We had help on the phones today from Gus Contreras, and our executive producer is Jeff Whittington. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. Thank you.